Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. At the end of the 19th century, Amsterdam was home to nearly 70 diamond factories, in which were 7,500 steam-powered polishing mills. The workers who cut and polished the diamonds brought there from the mines of South Africa were not all Jewish, but many of them were. Indeed, in the late 1890s, Jews were about 10% of the population of Amsterdam, and half of them were economically reliant on what the Dutch called simply the profession. Nor was the involvement of the Jewish community with the diamond trade unique to Amsterdam. In her new book, A Brilliant Commodity, Diamonds and Jews in a Modern Setting, Saskia Kunin-Snyder traces the involvement of Jews not only in Amsterdam factories, but in the diamond fields of South Africa, in London, and in the growing consumer market of the United States during the 1890s. She also examines how the involvement of Jews with diamonds became a feature of anti-Semitism. Saskia Kunin-Snyder is Associate Professor of History at the University of South Carolina, where she is also a core faculty member of the Jewish Studies Program. Saskia Kunin-Snyder, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's a great book. Um, and I have to say the title is witty uh, <laughs> and the cover is extraordinarily witty. In fact, I do judge a book by its cover. And I thought not only is this a great subject, but dang it, that's cover so good. I have to talk to you. So I want oh, to give a shout out. I like to give a shout out to the podcast to great cover artists. And I don't know who did it. I, did, I forgot to check, but it's fantastic. Yeah, it is beautiful. Well, to be honest with you, I, I did have to get used to it for a little oh, bit. It's, um, I mean, I just want to say to listeners, because this doesn't convey well on a podcast, that mm -hmm. it's a, a, a diamond with facets and the facets of Star of David with different uh, aspects of Jewish involvement in the diamond trade in the, each facet. Yeah, and they did a fantastic job with the colors. Mm -hmm. It has this black background that's a matte color, and the um, Star of David with on these triangular facets with photographs from different yes. continents that trace they are tracing the book um, uh, that really colorfully pops up. So, uh, and that's a quality cover. So that's really it is, and it, 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 it unlike most covers, it conveys what the book is actually about. I mean, yeah. you're going mm -hmm. that because you are going in this continent. You're, you are, and we can talk about this, that you you really do trace it step by step um, mm -hmm. through the continents from the diamond, uh, from deep in the earth to the final, to the to the consumer, uh, him or herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a book that, it's about a trajectory of yeah. an object and we follow it from mine to market. Um, and mine so market. it's, yeah, and we, I like the idea of learning and this is, partly how I write and, and how I teach to learn history through objects um, and who touches them, who makes it, who consumes it. Um, so to trace the faces behind the object, uh, the fingerprints that are on the diamond, uh, that's the story, I think. And so the book cover um, does that very, very effectively. Um, I think what I said about having to get used to it is that because um, it's this Jewish star was just so uh, so prominent on it, mm -hmm. and so I it, it took me by surprise when the first time when I saw the covers, like oh wow, um, and um, but I I really really like it now, and so it's uh, it took me a while, but I'm a big fan. So in the introduction, there's a lot of I, 
in a way that sometimes when journalists write history, it's, I was surprised to find, or I found that a, a, a hitherto undiscovered document, which actually isn't undiscovered, it's just that no one's looked at it for a while because it's in someone else's footnote. But Absolutely. but you, you, I should say, let's use the one of our favorite uh, historian verbs, you deploy the eye very carefully and thoughtfully, and it works, it works. And also that you don't use it again because, but mm -hmm. I got the sense of it in the direction of something personal about the way that you follow this. So you describe some of your sort of adventures in, trace, yeah. in tracing the, the mind to market. I like that, it's better than farm to table. Yeah, I mean, I'm a Dutch native. And so um, I was born and raised in the Netherlands. And so to think about, uh, and in my field in Jewish history, you cannot think about um, Jews in the Netherlands without thinking about the diamond. I mean, they're so intricately connected. And so my first um, my first thought about doing something more with that uh, was when I um, walked into the Diamond uh, Museum in Amsterdam. And I, I was very much struck by the photograph that I saw there um, of Jewish diamond workers sitting at these benches, um, uh, working away in the 1890s, around the turn of the century, really. Um, but not a lot of narrative was actually clear in the museum there. Um, it's much, it, kind of, they talk about diamonds and diamond history very much um, uh, from the perspective of the royal family. And at the end, you kind of see them as kind of royal gems. And it's a very uh, sparkly, a sparkly, beautiful exhibit. But the historical narrative uh, was kind of quiet about the important role that Jews played in that history. And so um, I knew there was a story to be told there. And walking through the city, if anybody who walks through Amsterdam, um, it is, it's a part of the urban environment. The, the diamond factories are, uh, they're, they're large, they're prominent, they're there. Um, not all of them are there anymore because of the Nazi past. Um, but it is, uh, it, it's, diamond factories became a very, um, prominent feature of Dutch uh, architecture in the, in the city. And so there is, there's a story there that I found personally very, uh, very fascinating. And, um, but we also can't talk about the diamond industry in Amsterdam without looking or understanding what's happening around it, where it comes from, where it goes. Uh, and so that's the part that, that fascinated me also. So I think the second podcast I ever did was with my colleague Todd Cleveland about diamond, mm -hmm. diamonds in Africa. So, but I, I, <laughs> I doubt many listeners have gone back to listen to that one, but we'll have it, it'll be in the show notes. So very briefly, um, the diamond trade goes through a tremendous, it's like a new planet has been discovered when diamonds are discovered in South Africa. Is that right? But the, the diamond business had long existed in Amsterdam prior to that. Correct. Yeah, and Jews are engaged in the diamond industry well before the 19th century. Um, in part in Antwerp, in Belgium, as well as in the Netherlands, because there were no um, restrictions in guilds, in, in diamond polishing guilds. And so they had access to that. Um, most of those diamonds before the 19th century come from Brazil and from India. Uh, those are the ones that are providing in very limited but very um, but important ways, uh, providing rough stones. And South Africa is not at all on the map at this part uh, in the diamond industry. Well, that's very interesting. So that, because um, I know there was a Jewish presence for uh, on again and off again in Brazil. 
And then, mm -hmm. of course, famously, when they were expelled at one point, they ended up the first synagogue in the United States is what in, in New York is expelled Sephardic Jews from Brazil, I believe, if I'm not if mistaken. Sephardic Jews are mostly engaged yeah. in the diamond trading and um, in the diamond industry um, before, really before the 18th century. And so because they're so engaged in transatlantic trade, um, they're also bringing rough stones back from India, from Brazil to manufacturing um, little manufacturing centers in Antwerp and Amsterdam. Those are centers is a big word. Mm -hmm. they, they mostly were done or cut and polished at home. Um, they, we, we're not talking here about factories yet. We're not talking about workshops. We're talking about very kind of small volume of stones. Um, but because these, um, partly why Jews become so prominent in the 19th century is because they already have a longer industry. In, um, in diamond trading, they have connections, and so um, it is. There is a little bit of a groundwork there. Mm -hmm. That uh, well, is. it's absolutely. It must be because that's one of my questions. Is it will see is is that this becomes such a a British possession, I mean, mm -hmm. the, uh, and yet Amsterdam manages to stay on top. It manages to still be part of the trade. And yeah, the entire commodity chain wouldn't be able to function without Amsterdam. And and, and the British never get bring diamond polishing on shore, as it were. It's, it, it, I, some goes on in London, of course, but Amsterdam <laughs> remains center to to the entire flow. I mean, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get to it that. is. Cool. It is absolutely central. It is also highly dependent on London, mm -hmm. and so there's this mutual relationship that um, that is important. They can't do without London, um, but and vice versa, London can do without the polishers. So place is very important to your story, as you say, you're going mind to market. So we're going to go in the sort of the order of the book, quicker mm -hmm. than the book. We don't want to give too much away, and <laughs> uh, there's uh, just as. You had to obviously leave out a lot of stuff, as we were talking about before we started recording. Uh, we're going to have to leave a lot of stuff out of the podcast in order to make keep this to an hour. Sure. Uh, but we're going to go South Africa, London, Amsterdam, New York. Um, it sort of feels a little bit like the plot of Diamonds Are Forever now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> before we begin, though, um, why are Jews involved in the diamond trade? Because it it's, it's easy to understand once you explain it. Well, it's in a way, it's the advantage that they have of a particular historical moment. Um, we see in the uh, late 1860s the discovery of diamonds in South Africa, mm -hmm. um, and it is a moment where we see a the, the discovery of vast diamond deposits um, that create an enormous amount of supply with a growing bourgeois consumer culture elsewhere. That has an enormous um, demand demand for for stones, and, and Jews find themselves particularly in that moment where they come um, with a history of already uh, being engaged in diamond trading, of having access to investment capital, to a certain uh, sense of adventure, where um, they find themselves in a in a time and a place where they take advantage of those new opportunities, um, and so. There, a lot depends, and I describe this in the book in detail, a lot of it depends that um, on family and kin networks. They, they oftentimes have families in, uh, in London, in, uh, in, on frontier settlements, uh, in New York, where they can um, uh, rely on certain trustworthy relationships that they may have. 
plus they have access to investment capital. Uh, there's oftentimes an uncle uh, who is managing a bank, a family bank in Paris or uh, in London. And so at a time where frontier economies were risky, uh, they had access to investment capital based on trust. So we, it's so it, yeah. So it's all trust. It's passing off stones to people you trust. It's getting money from people you trust, and thereby pouring oil on the troubled waters of a frontier economy or frontier culture. Yeah, and I want to make sure that that your listeners understand that um, this is not an exclusively Jewish enterprise. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many non-Jews engaged in this too, and and. Um, there are non-Jewish um, banks who start to invest as well. And so it's, it's not a, uh, I don't want to make or give you the impression that this is, um, you know, we have, always have to be very in, kind of careful with these terms of control, uh, of a, uh, that somehow the business is controlled by Jews. Um, that's, not the, uh, that's not the argument I'm making. But when you think about the disproportionate number of Jews engaged in the business, then we do have to recognize that there was something there that, that drew Jews into the business and did so very successfully. So let's go to the, the mining fields. What's a where are mine where are diamonds being taken from in South Africa? And when do Jews become involved in the who becomes yeah. involved in that first? So before they find diamonds in South Africa, they were all found near water sources. And so they call them alluvial deposits. And so in Brazil and in India um, they are people are literally standing knee deep in the soil, um, sifting debris. It's very backbreaking, difficult work. In South Africa, they begin to find diamonds in so-called dry diggings in areas where you normally wouldn't find diamonds, and so um, they're surprised by this. And so most people at the time there have no sense of what's underneath their feet. Um, they start pitching tents in places where they do begin to find diamonds in the soil. Um, and Jews are there at that time because they're engaged in trading that has nothing to do with diamonds. Um, they are they are managing import and export companies on the coast. Um, they're engaged in um, in trading all kinds of material goods and provisions from Europe to uh, new areas in uh, in the Cape Colony. And so there are already small groups of Jewish immigrants and traders and merchants um, in those areas and they like non-Jews and many many other people hear about this news that diamonds have been found and they flock to those new areas but they're mostly engaged in providing diggers with provisions that they need and so most Jews are there not because they want to dig uh, and they want to kind of be part of this this diamond fever that bursts onto the scene but they're there to take the buckets and the ropes and the whiskey and the cigars and everything that a digger and a small settlement community might need to bring those goods there. So that's, I mean, so like Jews in the American South, they're into dry goods. Absolutely. Um, and Absolutely. this is, and this is also kind of, it's, that, that's kind of, it's very interesting because that's, their role as dry goods purveyors in, the, in America is also very much related to, I think their role as diamond distributors and, and merchants. Um, it's part of this democratization of, of beauty to a growing middle class. Um, you know, yeah. it's no longer just for and the royal family. Yeah. And, and once Jews are there on the scene, um, you know, these, all, most of these people are just, they're recent immigrants. They're, uh, you know, they're, 
many of these people arrive in the Cape Colony with a few cents in their pockets. They smell opportunity. Uh, they are just like the you know, California gold rush. They flock to areas of economic opportunity. Um, and so, but early on, we see that people are, um, that they're beginning to use diamonds as currency because there is not a lot of currency. And so they use small stones to buy things or to sell things. Um, and these Jewish mer merchants discover fairly quickly that um, that trading and buying diamonds is lucrative enough that they don't need to do anything else, uh, no other dry goods, right? So, so unlike, unlike Levi Strauss, unlike other famous, uh, you know, grocers in the gold fields, that their fortune, they realize, is not going to come, is actually not just going to come through groceries or dry goods, but actually through the commodity itself. Absolutely. Okay. And because they have access to these merchant families who begin to take diamonds into their already existing inventories of what they export out of the Cape to back to Europe, like wool or wine or uh, all kinds of other things that are brought back to Europe because there are communities there who want it, um, they are beginning to include diamonds into their inventory and taking it back to Europe. And so this is kind of where we see small number or kind of volumes of stones being traded back and forth. And that explodes when they find these, uh, these uh, huge diamond deposits in the late 1860s. But speaking of trust, one of the reasons this works is because you can trust the Royal Mail or the Imperial Mail or Colonial Mail, speaking of trust. Um, it's very interesting. This is get back to our earlier podcast on postcards, where they come about when the technology of mail delivery technology is just ripe and successful and trustworthy. Yeah. But likewise, you can send, uh, well, I mean, you have the, the number here, uh, between 1870 and 1900, that's just 30 years, 15 million carats of rough diamonds left the South African continent by steamboat. If piled in a heap, it would form a small pyramid six feet high with a nine foot square base and weigh 10 tons. <laughs> That's leaving by the mail. That's not leaving yeah. necessarily by guards. I mean, it will be guarded eventually because you tell some great stories about people just reaching over the counter of the post office and picking up several million dollars. Yeah. yeah, but it's still the fact that you can put it in the mail. It's just that's an extraordinary thing in world history. Yeah, and it was really uh, I we hadn't quite thought about it that way. Really, the practical ways. How do you get a stone from the interior of South Africa? Uh, to the European continent, and it was really fun to kind of find out that a lot of, you know, for most of the 19th century, the entire global supply of rough diamonds came in a mailbag, um, and they they just put it in a bag or in an envelope, send it on a cart, first to Cape Town or to other, you know, kind of these, these coastal um, cities, and with horse and wagon brought it from the diamond fields to the post office uh, and before because there was no post office in places like Kimberley it's they were, you know, they were small canvas towns and so you have these stories of, uh, of robberies that they're they're stealing the meal the, the mailbags off the of the carts and that there's a request for um, that they need better security and they need safes of uh, all the way, brought all the way from London, across the Atlantic, across hundreds of miles of, of South African interior to get a safe to, to, to safeguard their, their inventories. And so, um, but absolutely, and it's, it's part of the moment that I mentioned earlier, right, where we see not only the discovery 
of um, these immense supplies of, of rough stones, but it's also a moment where we see improvements in technology, including the mail, um, and in transport uh, in general, um, and uh, mining technology in and of itself, that they can go deeper, they can, uh, they can um, mine larger quantities of stone, haul it to the surface, and then take it all the way across the Atlantic on steamboats. Um, none of that could have happened in such a short time to such a short or such an intensity um, as in the late 19th century. And so, again, it's this moment in which supply and demand and modern technology, mining capacity and travel and transport, all of that comes together in this, in this really vibrant moment. So speaking of supply and demand, that brings us to the syndicate, because mm -hmm. uh, key to this whole story is this really complex thing. I'm not a business major. I was never a business major. I don't know how you worked it all out in your head in order to describe <laughs> it. Um, but it, the syndicate is key to British imperial history in the last 30 years of, of the 19th century, which means it's, it's actually key to world history. Just look at the Boer War, Rhodesia, uh, I mean, it, yeah. the First World War in Africa. Um, so you should explain the syndicate because it is definitely, maybe it's not, it's bigger than a tail that wags the dog. Maybe it's like the rear legs or something like that. Yeah. So the London Diamond Syndicate becomes the central distribution um, organization in London um, in 1890, and um, it consists of uh, 10 companies, and they're almost exclusively Jewish companies. Uh, and it was a, an, a, it's a result of the consolidation of mining companies in South Africa, um, and it comes back, I have to take a step back to explain that, um, because what we see is that the vast population of miners, we're talking about tens of thousands of people um, by the 1870s, 1880s who are digging, um, they have to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the ground. Um, that required more technology and it required more investment. Um, because they went deeper into the ground, they needed more machinery to haul it to the surface um, in quantities so that, that um, they couldn't do with their shovel and their bucket alone. And so that required money, it required investment. And so individual diggers begin to disappear from the scene. And we see companies moving in that beginning to consolidate these mines. And so you see the, the kind of centralization of over time by the eight, late 1880s, early 1890s, of um, the entire mining industry in South Africa being monopolized by only a few companies. And the Beers is one of them. Um, and so many of the directors of those mining companies were people who started on the diamond fields uh, in the 1870s. They know the business from the ground up. They were oftentimes very um, uh, kind of have been experiencing the, the rise of this uh, of this enormous commodity industry. Um, and many, uh, the majority of them are European Jews. They either come from Germany, they come from England. They know that they can increase revenue, their power, um, if not only they distribute and not only produce the diamonds, uh, the rough stones, but also can go to the capital of the British Empire, back to London, where they can also be in charge of distribution. And so people like Barney Barnato or people like um, uh, uh, Lewis or people like all kinds of, uh, of many of these people who are on the fields early on go back to London where they start 
distribution offices. Mm -hmm. Now, by 1890, when we see the consolidation of the beers um, in South Africa, they make a deal. They make a deal between the beers and with these companies back in London, where they say, we will be able to sell you almost our entire inventory on the fields if you buy it from us and distribute it to us. And so what we see is that they, that it, it, it is an advantage to the beers to be able to get rid of its entire inventory. And then it's also uh, a powerful move on the part of the syndicate that, uh, that then is able to distribute, basically be in charge of the entire global supply of rough stuff. I, um, there are many economics papers that probably have already been written about this or that, that could come just by someone reading your book. I mean, we, we don't even have time to get into like the role of tariffs because that was really interesting. Uh, it will, it will see, we'll talk on that briefly. Uh, but it, it does make me, when I read that part, when I think about the syndicate, it does prove that Adam Smith was right. No, you, whenever two merchants of the same profession get together, uh, they immediately begin a conspiracy against the public interest, which is exactly what the syndicate is. Yeah, and the syndicate becomes enormously powerful because anybody who wanted to buy rough stones people in Amsterdam, right, who need to buy rough stones to be cut and polished in Dutch factories. They need to go to the syndicate and they basically have to abide by any rule that they give you because you have no other chance of getting your stones anywhere else because 90% of the entire global output of rough stones goes through the syndicate. So you have no, you just have to say yes sir um, and abide by whatever they, uh, they require. And so that's what most people do out. They come from New York, they come from Russia, they come from different places in the world to buy their inventory all in London. Um, and one of the regulations they have is that fine, you can have these stones, but you need to also buy X, Y, and Z of lesser quality. And so you had to buy them in sets so they could get rid of their entire inventory. So they force you to buy stones you may not want, but you have to still get them. And so otherwise you're out. And so you're on this list of people who are allowed to buy from the syndicate. And if you don't behave, then you can no longer buy. And so it's they have you yeah. basically they have um, where they where where they want you. They want you, yeah. yeah. Um, so you point out that with some exceptions, uh, London exhibitions, media, they don't portray the Jewish representation amongst the the diamond commodity chain, as you say. Uh, but Anglo-Jews do. And mm -hmm. there's a strong sense, um, reading some of these quotes, that it, it that, I mean, I've always heard about the, the contrasting views of Zionism in the 18, 1890s, early 19, 20th century between German and Russian Polish Jews. But my goodness, Anglo-Jews <laughs> must be thinking, well, why, this is the promised land. I mean, this, that, that the British Empire is the best place to be Jewish in the entire history of, of, of the last 3,000 years. Yeah, and they're, and they're very proud of, of being part of the imperial project. Um, they see themselves, of course, as Jews, right? they, they are in South Africa, when they go to South Africa, they are, no, they are not the other um, in a way that they for so long had been in Europe. They're white, I say, when they come in to South. Although one historian called it white, but not quite. <laughs> um, that they're still somewhat suspect. But they're they also are able to take advantage of being on the right side of the color line, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're white, um, and it's it's the African who is the black other. Um, and but they're really quite proud, and and in that sense, Anglo Jews are they are looking at this 
um, in in the same way as their non-Jewish contemporaries did, right? They are proud to be part. They they see themselves as superior um, European civilized people. Yeah, but just to push that, I mean, sure, there are like the Bleichloders and there are, there are German Jewish families that are becoming prominent at this time. But mm -hmm. I mean, is the Kaiser ennobling anyone? But the Rothschilds, the Sassoons, it's now possible for Jewish industrialists and financiers to, you know, it. it uh, God knows there's plenty of anti-Semitism, and we'll, we'll get to that. But nevertheless, it's still possible to rise higher up on the social ladder than no Jew is going to become a Junker, even as philo-Semitic as, as Germany might be at certain phases in, in German history. Yeah. Yeah, and we see this with people like um, Barney Barnato, for instance, who, who was born in Whitechapel as a poor uh, a poor Jewish lad, um, and he works himself up to be, become one of the most wealthy um, Jewish diamond uh, industrialists uh, and owners, and he works himself up to become one of the wealthiest men in London. Um, but he is, by the non-Jewish community, always seen not as a as a diamond magnet, as a Jewish a diamond Jewish diamond magnet. magnet yeah. Um, and his Jewishness always mattered, uh, and he could be as um, as as refined and as cultured as he wanted to portray himself, and he entered certain social circles that very few Jews did, but he was always seen as a Jew um, by the non-Jewish public. And we have to remember that this is also a time where the eight, between 1880 and 1914, more than two million uh, Jews leave the European continent and are emigrating. Mm -hmm. And large, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of so-called Ostjuden mm -hmm. in London. And it changed the dynamic of the Jewish community in London, um, where now the people like Barnato um, are looking at this and they seeing these large communities of East European Jews settling in this in the city, and they're not quite happy with it right. um, because it, it it jeopardizes their own image, their own um, they see it as threatening, and so and this also happens in the, in the United States. And so a, a point of of large scale Jewish emigration into places where and that translate into also a rise of racial anti-Semitism and of a certain sensitivity on the part of uh, of these Jews in um, in London, in New York, that they are responding Was to. Was this really, um, and I would imagine that, that those, uh, I don't know how far back, what was Barney Barnato's uh, uh, given name? I forget his family name, but I, how far? They, they, uh, Barnett Isaacs. So a lot of them, if they, depending on how early you came, if you came in like, gosh, the 17th century, uh, back, to, you were probably Sephardic. I mean, maybe from Portugal, maybe from the Netherlands, maybe. And then is this the beginning of, and this is, we're off topic a little bit, but is this beginning of a sort of a cultural Sephardic Ashkenazi sort of, you know, sense of different difference? Because they, have, they, haven't really, they haven't really been together, have they? I mean, they've been sort of, they've been apart. Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you're talking about. In in Amsterdam, for instance, Sephardic and, and Ashkenazi communities have been living together since the early 1600s. Okay. Uh, and and we see there that um, that relationships between those two communities initially were somewhat uh, ten tense, mm -hmm. um, but that disappears over time. Um, and so we we do see initially, for instance, the establishment of two separate congregations, two separate synagogues. But over time, these, this disappears and they uh, they integrate. 
Um, but there are also many Sephardic families who leave. They leave to London in when, when economic times are hard mm -hmm. in the 1900s. And so then it becomes mostly an Ashkenazi community. And so it, your question kind of depends on when and where you're talking as, about. As, immigra as immigration <laughs> always does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, let's go to Amsterdam then. Um, and this gets uh, sort of a pressing question. I think I already alluded to it. How did Amsterdam stay in the game? Wouldn't it have been yeah. wouldn't it have been in the interests of some of these 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 English Jewish uh, merchants to and gosh the Hatton Garden lots of Jew, Jews are in the diamond uh, retail business um, mm -hmm. the whole community has grown up around that why don't they bring over the skill from why don't they just buy it buy the labor bring it over you know <laughs> why not that. But instead, yeah. instead Amsterdam, stays, Amsterdam stays there in the chain. Mm -hmm. It does. And the, it has a reputation. And it has the reputation for it because there are so many Jews and non-Jews uh, that are proficient, highly skilled. They're master cutters and polishers. And they don't want to leave. Hmm. They don't want to live anywhere else than in Amsterdam. And so they, and we saw that um, if you read the New York chapter, there's an attempt to establish that. And... There are a few hundred Jews that leave mm -hmm. to New York City, but it's not—it's not really a success. And so, Amsterdam stays put, and the the, the, the reputation they have only grows uh, in in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, there are uh, tens of thousands of Jewish families who are engaged in the business. That's not something that you can just import to another uh, to another city. And so. Um, Plus, London and Amsterdam are so close. Uh, if you look at it geographically, yeah. it's uh, it's you know it's not that big. A, it's you don't have to cross the Atlantic Ocean no. to to bring your supplies, and so merchants could go. and Andries van Wezel is one of them that um, that I talk about in the book. Yeah, talk he, talk about him because he's a great. It's a great thumbnail yeah. of, a, of a of a very prominent personality in the trade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Andres Wezel is uh, he, he grew up in a typical Jewish family, five kids, poor working class. His father was a polisher. Uh, his brother is a is a um, apprentice, and as a I think he was about thirteen or so. Um, uh, let's check my yeah, as a thirteen year old, um, he enters uh, het fuck, They call it in Dutch the profession. profession. The profession. Yes, everybody knows what that means. And, I mean that it's a, a true amongst Gentiles and Jews alike. Het fuck. Wow. Head fuck. wow okay. Yeah, is it, that's how it, it really shows you linguistically mm -hmm. how important the diamond industry was to the city. Everybody in Dutch knows what head fuck means. To this day? Uh, no, this is it must have been not anymore. No, that probably today no. If you ask an 18-year-old on the street, fuck you won't know. But it's especially because it sounds something like something else. It does. Um, it does. It does. <laughs> especially in Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, what? I always have to pronounce this very like distinctly and perfectly when I uh, <laughs> <laughs> just people's eyes get bigger. It's like, it's like um, saying fencing in German. Yeah. Um, and so he is, he's a typical 13 year old um, who enters uh, the profession as a 13 year old and he works himself up and he enters in 1869, the year where they find the diamond deposits in South Africa are actually huge. Um, and this is a few years after they find the first diamond, now they discover there are these carrot-shaped sh carrot pipes under the ground that holds, you know, it's, uh, it's immense. Um, so precisely at that time, he learns the trade and he works himself up. The Amsterdam business explodes um, because of so much supply and, and the, the um, wages 
are high and he's able to, to take advantage of that as a young man. Um, he starts investing, he starts expanding his business and he becomes um, very, uh, very prominent. So at the beginning, by the way, just as uh, just a hopefully a, a point of fact, um, at the in the intro, I, I talked about diamond polishing machines. When I started reading the book, I was thinking diamond polishing, is that something you do with like a Q-tip, maybe some out rubbing alcohol? What, what is actually involved in diamond polishing? It, it must be a serious business. Now I think about it since it's the, since it is the hardest substance. It's the hardest substance on earth and it's carbon, right? It's the inside of your pencil. Um, but it's the hardest um, substance on, on the planet. So the only way in which you can cut and polish uh, a diamond and put facets on it is with other diamonds. And so you have to imagine that it's you're at a diamond mill and you're sitting at a, basically a it's almost like a flat pizza stone um, that's that's um, turning very quickly and that is uh, the steam motor uh, accelerates mm -hmm. that and then you put the rough stone in, in kind of a into a soft um, head of metal that's kind of made they heat it up so with solder and they make it soft you put the stone in they you cool it down. So it's fixed in there. And then they use a certain diamond powder called Bort together with some oil on that pizza stone-like uh, surface and, and spin it. And that's when you can start putting the facets on. And so these big factories, it's like a steam plant with like belts probably made out of American buffalo hide, like a lot of things were. The belts running all these spindles and all these at each individual yeah. workstation, and they're all involved in that. So it's industrial, but it's also still at the same time a craft. So it's an interesting sort of halfway house in between. like. Yeah, and there's a hierarchy there in that factory about who does what. And so you have the cutter. You have the polisher, you have your assistant who takes the stone out of that soft mold and heats it up, hmm. cools it down, and places it into a different angle, does it all again, hands it over to the polisher, he does it. So there's an entire kind of small army in those factories, and you have to kind of think about what those factories were like. They were loud, mm. they were hot, They uh, it, it was actually um, uh, uh, unsafe for a long period of time because they used to heat up the material they also used copper um, and some of the sub kind of the particles of, of when they heat stuff like this down that you would breathe in could cause um, all kinds of lung diseases and so this is partly why the union the diamond union in the 1890s and around the turn of the century begin to argue for better and safer working environments because it's not a safe place to be just before we get to them because they turn out to be absolutely key to everything uh van vetzel he, oh, yeah. he makes it he makes it he uh he he what how do, what does he become what does he yeah parlay, so come back parlay, to, parlay his success into yeah so he he invests in not only in um newly built factories that he can do because he's making so much money as a um as a diamond uh, polisher and is smart with his investments um, but he also starts to expand um, abroad. So not only any invests in property in the city that has nothing to do with diamonds, it's just in property in general. Um, and so his he accelerates his own wealth basically by uh, by very smart investments. But he also relies on kinship and family networks. So his brother opens a factory in Antwerp, um, and then his children later on uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, go to New York City, and so they create this kind of transatlantic network of Van Basel um, factories, diamond factories, 
where he's, he was able to capitalize on the discovery and the increase of, uh, of trade in diamonds in the 1870s and 1880s, and then invest across borders to uh, expand the Van Wezel diamond empire. And it still exists to this day, by the way. In New York City, there's still a, a diamond factory that has roots in the Van Wezel family. Um, and so he's, he's one of those people who would, and this brings us back to London, he would um, hop in Amsterdam, hop on a boat, and it would take him to uh, to the London Harbor, and he would go to take the train uh, and go to Hatton Garden, buy his supplies, and then the next day he would travel back to Amsterdam to where he would have new inventory for his factories. And so to come back to your earlier question about why didn't they just start all of this in London, it wasn't that big of a deal to the community in Amsterdam just to get their inventory from across the English Channel. It took them a few days mm -hmm. and then they were uh, ready to go. And they had an entire proletariat um, back home that, um, that worked in their factories and that wasn't something that was easily uh, transferable. And so you're absolutely right that Amsterdam remains and becomes and remains um, in well into the early 1900s, the place where diamonds are cut and polished and prepared for the market. But more than that, and let me quote you to yourself, you say, modern Dutch Jewish history, the emancipation of its proletariat, the origins of the international Jewish labor movement cannot be fully visible without peering more closely at the diamond. Strong mm -hmm. claims. Yeah, and it's true. I still stand by it because it's the diamond industry produces the very first labor union in the country. Um, and it's it's because of, in part, the, the diamond syndicate, uh, because of its power and because of this increase in supply, begins to tighten the market. Um, because anytime you have a huge supply in something, the price of it plummets. Uh, and so to prevent that, they tightened the supply of diamonds, which caused unemployment in Europe. Uh, in Amsterdam. And so we see the kind of rumblings of, of socialist and, um, uh, and proletariat discontent about what's happening. And it comes to the surface, explosively in the surface, uh, in the diamond uh, industry. And so it's the, it's the diamond workers who are the first ones to go on a massive strike in the mid-1890s that leads to the very first uh, labor union in the country and then to make a big jump uh, ahead that you'll just have to read the book for it, but <laughs> that becomes the basis of the Dutch labor movement. Um, and the Dutch labor movement is still to this day an, uh, an important political party in the Netherlands. And so it all traces back to those, uh, to those uh, loud steam factories uh, in the diamond factory. In, in the diamond and then factory. has a connection to the American labor movement. Uh, mm -hmm. Because as, as, let's move on to the final sort of, the final step, New York. Um, why would diamond polishers, if they won't leave for London, okay, because it's close, but they do leave for New York. Um, yes. What's the push and what's the pull? What's uh, what's driving the, what's driving some people out? What's pulling them to New York? Yeah, interestingly, the success of the diamond or of the labor movement in Holland um, actually leads to an undermining of the very industry that they were trying to this, protect. Welcome to globalization. Absolutely, and so now they. Uh, Owners of the factories realize, oh, uh, <laughs> all my diamond workers want higher wages, and there's a minimum wage. It's the very first, by the way, very first introduction of the minimum wage is in the diamond industry. Hmm. Um, and so they're realizing that uh, it, it costs them more and more, and these new labor laws are complicated. Um, and so they look at New York and say, well, new Americans are the number one 
consumer of ornamental diamonds, they're our biggest client, why not bypass uh, Amsterdam altogether and start producing on American soil? That in combination with new tariff laws uh, in America, that uh, the Gorman, the Wilson Gorman Tariff Act. It's like all tariff laws. This is this is you know yeah. gonna bore you to death, but it's really important. To, it's really important though to this. There's a there's a it's it's an amazing kind of how things shake out. There, what are these tariff laws meant to do, and what do they end up producing? They change the 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 tariffs on ornamental stones imported into the United States, but they leave unfinished rough stones alone. <laughs> and so for those who are exporting from Europe stones to America, all of a sudden it costs them three times as much to uh, to take them to U.S. soil. And so believe me, I am not, I didn't like writing that part on tariff laws either. Hard. Yes, but it, um, it, but it leads to very real, immediate, real world <laughs> consequences. Like, like, oh no, terrible! I, I don't know how how economic historians do that. It's, uh, I want to pull my hair out, but it is so. We do see that it had an effect because um, all of a sudden it became so expensive to get ornamental stones uh, into the biggest market in the United States. And so, what company owners do is that they say, including the Formaso family, says, "Why don't we start a company in New York City and bring?" Um, cutters and polishers and, and Jewish lapidaries over uh, to to the United States. Now, one area of explanation: most of these are Jewish lapidaries, not non-Jew non-Jewish lapidaries. In part because Jewish workers mostly worked on bigger stones, hmm. and non-Jewish lapidaries worked on very small stones. I saw that. I, that's a very that was that struck me. I made a little note of that, but yeah. I don't know what to make of that. And so what happens is that in in when times were tight, um, people stopped buying large stones, but they can still afford small stones. Mm -hmm. And so we see the first unemployment then among those who work on large stones. Oh, so that's the that's so, the push. That's part of the push. That's part of the push. It's also part of the push because um, because there are large-scale strikes in Amsterdam, there's higher unemployment, there's a period of, of economic decline in the mid-1990s. And so people, that's also the push, is that there is uh, unionization, there's strikes, and then and they're pushing people out. Um, but there's also a sense of, of adventure, right? Is that they, if you're an unemployed diamond polisher on the streets of Amsterdam and you have a chance to go to America where you will be guaranteed a job, then why not try that? Uh, and so we do see several hundred of them, um, both uh, lapidaries, but also factory owners, relocating entire technologies and families and, um, and expertise to New York City. Um, and so the basis, and I'll, I'll stop with that, is that the, the basis of the American diamond manufacturing industry is actually of Dutch Jewish descent or origin. Yeah, and we should. There's some amazing um, sort of survivals of that. You, you describe some of the mm -hmm. some of the terms are uh, in American diamond trade are still Dutch. Yeah, yeah, and they um, and some of those terms linguistically are have been adopted by the industry. Uh, like the 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 schijf, for instance, uh, Americans say schijf. Uh, that's the plate where they, or the mill where they, where they polish the diamonds on, and there are very uh, many examples of that. Um, but it's also true, to come back to an earlier point, because many of these lapidaries um, had been exposed to the power of unionization. 
is that we also see uh, the initiatives of Dutch labor unions, diamond labor unions on American soil. Mm -hmm. And so in Brooklyn, for instance, we see uh, the first diamond union uh, take, uh, being organized and their bylaws are in Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> and Samuel Gompers shows up. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the cigar rollers and the diamond polishers are like joined at the hip. Uh, yeah. And so this is all part of the American labor mo movement story from Absolutely. right at the beginning. Um, what's hilarious is to see that like, the Brooklyn Eagle is reporting on uh, uh, the world and the Brooklyn Eagle reporting that an additional 120 polishers are on their way to New York on board the, you know, the Majestic, which is a steamship. Um, this is like this is this is big news apparently uh on, on well it was big news because it broke all kinds of labor laws right. and people weren't happy with that um because you couldn't bring as a kind of an indentured servant you couldn't bring somebody under contract to america uh, and so it broke american labor law so we have these these really fascinating um newspaper stories and these controversies over should these people be allowed to stay or should we deport them and some of the main people who are arguing for their deportation are actually American Jews. They are in the, some of the main uh, or most significant names in the American um, uh, labor movement are saying, well, no, we don't want these people here. We want our own people to go to work and to, uh, to work in these new factories. We shouldn't bring in these, these Jewish immigrants um, in, 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 that goes against American uh, legislation and labor laws. And so, um, it, it was interesting to see that because we oftentimes have the image of that um, that everybody got along within these Jewish networks, right? We're all helping each other. It's a certain sense of camaraderie or maybe even of kind of ethnic bonds or so. And no, really not. Uh, we see that on several, we see that in South Africa, you see it in London, you see it in the American scene, is that, um, that networks could work in your to your benefit, to your advantage. But it could also mean that um, not every. You know, sometimes it was the opposite. Sometimes there's a, a rent in the network. Uh, yeah. Um, let's finish off by talking about not a place, uh, the popular imagination, and really mm -hmm. the ugly, uh, particularly ugly side of this story, and that's the way that Jew, uh, Jews and diamonds uh, really become intermingled in anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, and what's interesting is, is how this is occurs across the political spectrum uh, mm -hmm. was one of the things. But so we, you begin this chapter, the final, this, this final chapter with uh, Barney Barnado, who we've referred to before, Whitechapel yeah. Jewish boy, uh, made, made good, made rich, who's living this sort of uh, bi-coastal lifestyle or this uh, commuting base of London to South Africa. Um, and... He commits suicide. I mean, certainly the the version that you tell in the story and that a lot of people tell is that he commits suicide. This family has always disputed it, but it looks like he jumped off the steamship near Madeira for who knows, no one knows why. Um, yeah. And that immediately uh, becomes, he becomes a sort of template for a greedy, opportunistic shyster, uh, mm -hmm. a, a Jew who gets by on cheating, and theft and who has basically is the tip of the octopus he's yeah. he's he's the one that that is spreading infiltrating through the world like a virus mm -hmm. i mean all the anti-semitic tropes are there yeah and that's you know anti-semitism of course wasn't new Ooh. when jews become so involved in the diamond industry um 
But what we, when we look at the material in, um, in the 1890s into the 1900s, then um, we begin to see diamonds as part of the, uh, the representations. And so it's the case with uh, Barnato, certainly, but it's everywhere. It's in newspapers, it's in, um, in cartoons, political cartoons, it's in novels, in detective novels, uh, when they talk about illegal diamond buying, IDB it's called, in IDB, the, um, in the detective novels, and particularly in Britain, um, where the, uh, the bad guys are always Jews, right? And then so this trope of the, the, uh, the person who could not be trusted, or the, the uh, as you mentioned, the kind of the, the crook, right? He is always of Jewish descent. And so we see, and again, I want to bring this back to larger historical change. Uh, as a historian, we have to kind of think about what's happening at this moment, right? This is also the height of Jewish immigration. Mm -hmm. This is the beginning of racial anti-Semitism, of race science, um, of uh, the kind of social acceptance increasingly of the idea of, of racial anti-Semitism and of, of uh, uh, identifying Jews as a separate race, as an inferior separate race, it's infiltrating. Uh, this is the time also in Germany, we see the first anti-Semitic petitions um, of getting Jews out of public life, political life. And so all of this is happening on the surface. And so what we see is that um, anti-Semitism uh, and the way it's portrayed visually and that diamonds make an appearance in that, and and so they become very much intertwined, and and so it was it was interesting to to kind of see that in the so at any moment when there is some kind of crisis, and this happens to this day, right? When there's some kind of crisis, you see anti-Semitism mm -hmm. kind of bubbling up uh, uh, quite powerfully. The, it happened during the Boer War, right? And then then during the Boer War, it's the it's the it's a uh, Jewish conspiracy. Yeah, it's, 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 it's prior to the protocols, the elders of Zion, but mm -hmm. it's the same, it's the same tropes. I mean, yeah. what I, what I, what this is appealing to uh, the way that this appeals to left and right, sometimes differently or the same way at the same time. Um, here you've got, I mean, diamonds are weird. They're not gold. Gold is somehow associated with money I, in people's probably imagination at the time. Diamonds are just rocks. They're just for display, <laughs> extra. but they're light. They're tiny. They, they're portable. They're uniquely portable and valuable, but they're just for ornamentation and display. They're the worst excesses of the capitalist system, but they're rootless and cosmopolitan at the same time. Yeah. I mean, so they, 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 they have all that, you know, together. Uh, yeah, and, and diamonds have, in that sense, and it's partly where I talk about in the conclusion, diamonds have been good to Jews. Um, it's also not always worked in their benefit um, in terms of the public perception of Jews because it played into these tropes of control, of power, um, of, of being untrustworthy people. Um, and so in the public imagination, the connection between Jews and diamonds um, has it fed into into a very harmful stereotype um, and and so it takes us if you look at it in the long term and we move into the 1930s and 1940s diamonds also become a way for Jews to you know, it, it did in some cases protect them um, when you look in look in the Nazi period diamonds were portable you could put them inside of a hem you could try you know you could travel it was in a way security uh, could cross borders with you. Uh, you could bribe somebody with you, and that that um, a diamond could save your life. 
but it also, um, in certain cases, uh, could kill you, right? And, and, and so we see this particularly in the 1940s in the diamond industry in Amsterdam when the entire um, industry becomes Nazified. It, it falls under the Nazi regime. Um, the Nazis want to take control over, uh, over the diamond business. And so many Jews are engaged in that belief that the diamond would protect them. Um, and they didn't leave the city because they thought they became ins indispensables as cutters and polishers. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's the diamond then also has this real dark side and it's real kind of, it, but also its value. And, and so it's a fascinating object to me to, to learn uh, more about. It's, and I describe this in the introduction. It's like the diamond itself is, it has like a, you know, hundreds of these little mirrors that refract light when it comes in and it, it, it illuminates all these. That's the whole purpose of the stone is to make it as sparkly and as, as possible. But if you look at it, you know, from a historical perspective, it, you, those mirrors also shine light on all these different aspects of, uh, of the economy, of Jewish life, of globalization, of, of bourgeois consumer markets, all of these things that one object can tell us as a storyteller, right? A diamond ultimately is a storyteller uh, that could give us information about all, this, uh, all, all the things that are happening around it. My guest today has been Saskia Kunen-Snyder. She's author of A Brilliant Commodity, Diamonds and Jews in a Modern Setting. Saskia, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 